This is Humans of Non-League, a podcast about the people who live and love football outside the spotlight. My name is Chris Nee, and this week's Human is a media machine with writing credits and some massive international titles, as well as coverage for a club closer to home. Rob Hemingway is a multilingual, NCTJ accredited journalist and a scout with FA Talent ID qualifications. He's also an advocate for the non-league game and involved on multiple fronts. So let's get stuck in. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi Chris, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Lovely to speak to you again. I'm going to go straight to the beginning. I think it's going to be a, become a bit of a habit for me because I'm desperate to kind of get a proper understanding of the people who actually make the game happen. And that, to me, starts with a love of football in childhood and maybe before football in childhood. So I always like to start at the beginning. So let's let's do that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, in Tunbridge in Kent, um, that well-known uh, behemoth of football football, uh, football heartland um at, funnily enough now home to tumbridge angels who are um quite a well-known non-league club but um not quite in the same league as as um the club i currently cover so um yeah it was uh i, I did used to hear shouts from their ground at home but um not a ground i frequented enormously but uh yeah my my football love certainly did begin from from young I think Tunbridge Angels so far are the most mentioned club not connected to any of the people who I've spoken to. It's come up yeah, quite really. a lot already, yeah. Um, did you play football as a kid? I did, yeah. I um, I actually started off with uh, the Cubs. It was my very first team. Um, and I think the only reason I joined was because I knew they had a football team. And for whatever reason, there was you know, requirements that you had to be a, a, a member to, uh, to take part. So that was... Uh, you know, aside from sort of playground kickabouts, I think that was my first experience of organised football. So that would be Saturday mornings, was it, where you were? I think so, yeah. Um, and then it sort of, it quickly migrated into sort of bigger teams around the town and, you know, obviously going to you know, primary school and secondary school, um, sort of going up through club and school and whatnot. But yeah, you never sort of forget those um, those first moments, which were definitely some of the most enjoyable. What position were you playing in those days? I was mainly up front, but I had some terrible droughts along the way. <laughs> and I think I just migrated back, really. I used to, by the end, I say end, I think I, I stopped playing competitive football, sort of maybe 14, 13, 14, something like that. Um, and I, by then I'd migrated back and just preferred kind of laying, laying people in and just generally, I may be scarred from uh, from years of not scoring goals. I thought, well, I'd take the take the focus, take the heat off myself, and just set people up instead. Yeah. So take take the finishing out of the equation. Were you any good? Uh, I don't know how you assess being any good these days, but I I was um, I, I definitely had a, a sort of purple patch around kind of maybe ten to maybe nine to eleven something around there where. You're just in that moment where you're kind of loving the game. You're just sort of growing up enough to get strong enough to do everything, and you know playing with some some good friends and stuff like that. And I think you know just before the age, it started to get a bit serious, and you had to choose which sport and all that sort of stuff. So I'll call myself an okay player. We'll leave it at that. Did you play hockey? I did. Yeah. And no, actually, when I say I had to choose sports, I, I actually ended up choosing hockey as my main sport, which I don't think was an easy decision. From memory, um, I was playing tennis a lot as well at that time, and cricket. And it was sort of there was just not enough time in the calendar by the age by the sort of time I was getting a bit older. So I went for the one that I think I I think I was probably best at hockey. So I chose it. I'm not sure I 
I probably edge hockey in terms of enjoyment as well, but it was very close with, with football and, and tennis as well. But um, yeah, there just comes a point where you, you have to decide. So what sort of standard would you have been playing hockey out of the peak then? Uh, well, I played professional hockey um, when I was a lot older, so 2022 in, okay. um, in Switzerland. In Switzerland? And, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Tell me that story. <laughs> well, I actually got... Um, a friend of mine was, we'd just finished university and he was, he'd found this opportunity to, to go abroad and, and play hockey and be, be paid for the privilege. And, um, yeah, they were looking for a second player. So, um, he kind of knew that I spoke a bit of French and yeah, it was at a fairly loose end after four years at uni. So, um, it all worked out really nicely. And, um, yeah, it was definitely one of the most enjoyable things I've done. Not that, not only from a sporting perspective, um, but also from a, a life perspective, just being able to go and experience a new country and meet a load of people who I'm still in touch with and just take a lot from it. So you came back just when that came to an end? I did, yeah. I think I think I had the option to stay on, but I sort of um hockey's not a really massive sport and um, you know, in order to make it, so to speak, you you've got to be absolutely top top draw. So um I think uh, the opportunity for me to uh, to make a living out of it was was fairly small. So um, yeah, I, I came back to the UK and decided to um, yeah get my feet under the table of an office job. <laughs> Switzerland's pretty special, though. It is. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. I'd, really I'd love is. to. Um, I'd love to go and live there again. So, in terms of football, Rob, how did you first get into the game as a supporter? Uh, well, my, my I remember my very first game going to see was uh, Arsenal Southampton at Highbury and it was Dennis Bergkamp's first goal in English football. He'd been on I think quite a drought uh, up till then so it was quite yeah. a special moment. I couldn't I remember not being able to see anything because I was just too small and everyone would stand up as people do when the ball even gets within the you know, crosses the halfway line but uh, yeah I mean that was a that was an amazing memory. It must have been about 97, 96, maybe something like that. And it was, yeah, just about the time I was getting into to proper fandom, you know, collecting the albums. Funnily enough, Arsenal weren't actually my club. I, I just got into Man United religiously through gigs in Canton. I was, I'm sure a lot of people of that era did, but, um, that was as well as sort of going to games, just being able to watch those games, big European nights on the TV and, yeah, it was it was magical, and I, you know, I definitely think um, that was what really sparked the fire for for what's become my career now. So, have you retained that love for United into adulthood? Oh, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> it's. I mean, obviously, that'll always be the club of my heart. It's just very. I'd say some of the magic sadly disappears from when you start to realise how clubs are owned and how people run clubs and what their motives are. And all the ugly stuff that you don't know as a kid, all you see is the, the 22 people on the pitch and, uh, and the action. And you don't really notice, yeah, say the, the off, the off field stuff or the cynical stuff on the pitch just sort of just goes over your head. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a different thing being a, a fan now, but you know, I, you still always, it's always in there and you always want them to do well, no matter how it's going. So how long have you been a non-league fan observer participant? Uh, probably the last uh, two to three years now. So I, I moved to Woking in about 2017, I think it was. 
and not long after I I actually changed from the career that I was doing into into sports journalism, which then funnily enough happened for me that I was living in the same town as, as quite a big non-league team, which are working obviously. And um yeah, the opportunity came around very strangely as it happened in the end, but the opportunity came around to to cover them and really that has been my my route into non-league, I suppose, and I've I've absolutely loved it. I mean, it's been it's been a, a good few years now, but uh, you know, I, there's a lot to enjoy about non-league that you perhaps don't get from from fact being a fan higher up, and obviously all the the privileged access you get to games, particularly obviously during the pandemic, has been has been wonderful, and um, you know, having the chance to to be around a, a club where everyone is a lot more open, a lot more accessible has you know, made me want to follow non-league a lot more and it's led me to sort of follow all sorts of things around non-league which are uh, you know exciting for anyone who's, a, who's a, a lover of that tier of football. I imagine the discovery element's still quite fresh for you a few years in. It is, it is. I think from going to games a lot you just learn an awful lot about kind of how the local community is and every club is so unique. Every club has the same dynamics, but they are all so different. They've all got very different histories, which take them up to these days. I mean, you don't need to look at teams in Wokings League for how clubs have either reached there through coming up through all the leagues or coming down through all the leagues, or, you know, some might have kind of had financial strife or terrible ownership and all this sort of stuff. And, but in the end, it comes down to most times a sort of a core group of really passionate supporters who just want their team to do well. And um, and that's that's one of the things I love about it the most, I think. So my bread and butter nowadays is non-league. I go home and away with a, a step five club where I'm on the committee, do the podcast, do the programme. But my first two non-league matches, the first one was a pool town game, which doesn't count yeah. because it was at Dean Court. And the second yeah. one was Woking versus Forest Green Rovers in oh, there you go. 2004, I think. So... Woking's always had a bit of a sort of a strange place in my heart. It's certainly not one of, you know, love, but mm. it's always going to be the first time I actually took myself into a non-league ground yeah, and felt what non-league was all about. And it was those same things that kind of came across to me and they just amplify over the years and, and you get really used to that environment. And I'm sure some people don't fall for it, but I know I, I certainly did. Yeah. Is that for you, is that translated into being a, a Woking supporter, would you say? Yeah, it's a difficult one because obviously I cover the club very closely and there's actually very, very few, uh, there's only two written media journalists who properly cover the club, it's me, me and one other guy. Um, and there's a few others, obviously BBC Surrey and kind of, you know, the other types of people you might expect. But I think what that means is that you, obviously all of us try to maintain a, uh, a degree of impartiality, but when you're in the press box, you can't, you know, I'm a, there is partiality. I mean, the, the, one of the co-commentators for BBC Surrey is is a, a director on the board, for example, and clearly that gives him a you know a knowledge of the club that means he's an excellent co-commentator. But equally, he wants to he's going to want his team to to win, and that sort of comes across in in some of the commentary. But for me, it's it's um yeah by virtue of being so close to the club, you do want them to win. You want them to do well. By doing well, that sort of gives you you know more exciting matches and, and stories to cover and things like that so yeah i i'd say i'm i'm 
you know, I've become a fan, but um, in the coverage uh, that I write, I have to try and still be uh, impartial and reflect the uh, the the facts as opposed to um, having too much of a woking slant. How did you get the gig with the, the local newspaper? I was doing a, a kind of internship or... Yeah, I was, I was basically covering Woking and a few other clubs for uh, another paper. When I was finishing there, the editor said, I kind of asked the editor, I said, oh, you know, is there anything I could carry on doing here or elsewhere? And she said, oh, well, I, I know of a job that's going at the Woking News Mail, which is the, the paper I now work for. Yeah, look it up and, and see how you go. And I got home, looked it up, saw the advert. True enough, it was on Twitter. And yeah, just snowballed, really. I mean, I'd messaged the, I messaged the guy... Uh, the editor who'd, um, the MD rather, he'd come back within, within a day or two. We met at Cafe Rouge of Woking and, um, hit it off and that was it really. What does a typical Woking match day look like to you from the moment you kind of get in the car, get on the train? Yeah, very different at the moment, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, taking away the, uh, obviously, a, yeah, a big thronging ground is, is a, is a massively exciting experience. I think when, um, when it's a big fixture, for example, um, last year there was the derby with Aldershot very early on, which I think was probably the first, I think it was the first game I think I'd covered at Woking's ground, which was obviously quite special. There's the biggest ground, the uh, biggest crowd of the season, quite a baying sort of, mm. uh, opposition support, nice balmy summer's evening, August evening. Um, that was really special. I think. Yeah, obviously nowadays it's been a, a quite a privilege being able to go into the grounds when there's no one else there and being able to see the action and feel like you can communicate it back to others through your writing, through Twitter and whatnot is, is a nice thing to be able to do. But that period has been rather strange. I mean, if I think back to some of the actual sort of normal games, then yeah, I, I actually tend to cycle to the ground, which is quite nice. I'm, I'm within reach unless it's absolutely tipping it down. And... Yeah, I mean, it's, I tend to get there kind of half an hour before. So it's quite, I actually quite like being able to watch the team warm up. That's yeah. in some ways one of the things I enjoy the most just because you can stand right on the touchline. You can kind of hear what they're all chatting about. You can see what, you know, what exercises they're doing to get ready. You can see, work out maybe who's on the bench and who isn't. Obviously, you might have had the team sheet by that point. But yeah, and then it's sort of just a short walk up to what is a very, I don't think the club will mind me saying primitive um, press box with a tin roof uh, and very cold on a on a winter's evening uh, if it's a Tuesday night game. But um, yeah, usually it's it's a case of uh, if it's a weekend game, I've got a bit more time to think about the report given our papers deadlines. But Tuesday nights are probably the more manic ones because I um, that's a live report with the, the paper due to go to print the same night. So. Sometimes a bit stressful if the uh, if there's late goals and late drama. The curse of the football journalist. Yeah, that's right. How do the players interact with you as someone who you know they're probably aware has, has got a level of affection for the club, but ultimately is there to to do a job, but a very specific job focused just on that one club? Have they kind of got the measure of who you are and what your role is there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm still relatively new. I mean, so um, if I think of some of the other guys who've, who've been around the club in the media capacity they've certainly been there a lot longer than i am and they've, they've made there's a lot of people at that club who are who've been there years and years and years i think of someone like gary richardson who's the old um, bbc commentator who used to be i think a director on the board and he sort of comes in and, and sits in the director's seats and chats to everyone who he knows and 
it's kind of that relationship all around really so i'm still you know i obviously know a lot of the guys quite well by now and yeah i think it's i think generally they understand the job you're trying to do i think the manager sets the tone a lot of the time he's very open and willing to give up his time and i think that probably filters down to the the players as well i think it's important he's a very community centric manager so he doesn't just think about the team and getting his team through matches although that's obviously front and center is also about you know helping people do their jobs and being a bit philanthropic so he does a lot of work for hospices and charities and all the rest of it and you know that that sort of reach in the end works to everyone's favor because the club is seen in more favorable light and then all that kind of you know works both ways so yeah it's a it's a it's a good um it's a good relationship between sort of all the all the involved parties i think around the club and i think um particularly during the pandemic i think it's been important to have that because i think people are um looking out for each other a bit more working with each other a bit more trying to sort of look out for each other's mutual success and stuff so that's been that's been a really nice part of it you also have a scouting role i do somewhere else (laughs) which is fascinating to me for reasons that i can't really explain Um, yeah, I, I scout lower down the uh, the non-league pyramid. So for, for connoisseurs of non-league, it's uh, it's a step four club called Ashford Town who play in the Isthmian League South Central Division. I think that's right, and that's you know just as enjoyable, really. I mean, I think I'd because I because I changed career into into sort of journalism and writing and I suppose football as a whole. I always wanted to. You know, I did it with the premise of right. I'm going to do what I want to do, otherwise there's no there's no point to me having done this. So, so that was one of the things I really I've always really enjoyed doing is sort of watching games through a different sort of lens. I can I can I work out what this team are doing? Can I work out what the players are doing? Can I use that to the benefit of a of a team? Um, and obviously, it's helped being a journalist because you're just at a lot of games. Um, anyway, albeit, you know, I've watched a lot of games on TV and, you know, uh, football manager and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, maybe slightly different to what I expected. You've got to be so concentrated throughout the game because I think there's so many different things going on at any one point. And depending on what the manager wants to know for the team that you're watching, it's difficult to put only one pair of eyes to capture it. So it's been, it's been really enjoyable and um, I'm, you know, hoping to sort of carry on and, and keep learning. But uh, yeah, it's definitely one of those things where um, you're quite tired after an hour and a half, so an hour and a half's work. <laughs> is it fair to say the challenging bit is what players are doing off the ball? Yeah, it, it is. I think um, sometimes video saves you. So if, you've got, mm. if you're sort of watching it through your phone because it's a set piece or, you know, a, maybe a particular phase in play, then you might be able to look back over it but yeah it's, as you say it's, it's probably quite obvious to watch where the ball is in a football match but actually a lot of the clues you can get are from the off the ball stuff and as soon as a team loses the ball right what's their shape has it changed from what it was on the ball have the players positions changed and you know as the game goes on you start to see when you start to see that the same thing happening five six seven eight times you start to realize right i've got my pattern now and i can confidently say to the manager that uh, this is probably what they're going to do when when we play them and that's a that's a nice sort of yeah eureka moment when you know you, you've got that nugget and you, and you can take something away that will help the team hopefully get get more points 
when you go out and do that opposition analysis and you take in all of that information, you, you make those judgments on what's happening. What's the actual sort of raw material form of what goes back? Is that a phone call? Do you write an email? What's, how does that get back to the gaffer? It's a bit of a mix. So he'd send me a he'd send me what he wants to know in sort of bullet form, and then I would, well, first and foremost, try and answer all those questions, and then you know I might do little additional bits. So uh, you might ask to say, can you record all of their defensive set pieces, which means you need to free up a lot of space on your phone, uh, or your memory, uh, your own memory, and then yeah, it's just. Usually just the raw video material can, can be sent back or, um, yeah, a bit of a kind of summarised responses really to, to his questions. And a lot of the time he, he just wants that as simple as possible because I think a lot of the time it will go into, you know, non-league teams don't have a lot of time to do prep. So he might email it to a few players or he might just do it pre-match because of the pandemic. I haven't been in a lot of those meetings and things like that, but that is generally what I think happens to say when it's pre-match it just needs to be soundbites quick this that and the other not kind of a long thing that will make people zone out and forget Mm -hmm. by the time the match has got started how often have you seen ashford town play uh probably two or three times and not that often funnily enough well i'd only started the role yeah this this season really so there's not a lot of um it's not been a normal season by any stretch particularly as the season's just been it, it was paused in uh, in November, and unlike some of the other leagues, it hasn't got started again yet. And it, so uh, it's a difficult one. And and um, but you know, from my perspective, it, it does help to watch my own team, chiefly because I can then work out what our threats are and how they could marry up against the opposition. Obviously, if I'm just watching the opposition, then um, I don't have any idea of, of how we could hurt them. I've just got an idea of where they're weak. But you know, if they've got a slow right back, but our left wing is slow as well. Yeah. You know, for example, that's that's sort of, there's not much I can I can do there. But if if I know where we're really strong, I know where we could sort of really outweigh some of them, some of their weaknesses. It always strikes me as a difficult balance because you've you've got to be the opposition scout, which means that part of your job is to be somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It's a difficult thing because you do need to see your own team in order to do that. But then you have Woking on top as well, so it's your your Saturday calendar must be bedlam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of time. Um, the yeah, the midweek games, obviously, with this season being very condensed as well. There's a lot of Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, and then you know there's there's a few local teams around here in in Ashford's league, but. It's not often that a fixture will will totally correspond, and also the manager has he's going out to watch games all the time. He's got he's got his own staff who kind of do the same thing. So, I, but you know what I can do is sort of top up what he's seen or what he might know, uh, and then sort of you put that all together, and it's hopefully a good a, you know they've got they should have a good view on on who they're playing by the time the, the match comes around. How did you land at that club in particular? Um, I, I knew I knew the manager through my journalism work, okay. um, Luke Tufts. So he's a he's a very talented guy. He's very very switched on tactically. Perhaps unlike many managers, even I've come across further up the leagues, he's he's just um, very sharp. Can sort of instantly pinpoint where things are going wrong. And I sort of that always came through when I talked to him on on the phone before when I was covering his whole club. And yeah, it was. Uh, it was someone I sort of, you know, clicked with and, and wanted to work for because I think um, 
it's exciting being able to see things that he sees um, because it's, it's a great learning opportunity for me. I think he's doing his, his A license course at the moment. So that, you know, it, it, he's a good person for me to, to listen to and to um, be alongside because I will, I will learn things at the same time and, and hopefully I might, I, I might uh, tell him the old thing he doesn't know as well. You've mentioned learning there and you've also hinted a couple of times at a career change. <laughs> you've got a pretty interesting CV. And the way you've navigated those changes in your career was a bit more methodical than a lot of people might expect. Why don't you tell us a bit about that that process of moving into, as you say, football more generally? Yeah, it'd been a, it'd been on the cards for a long time. I think my career change. So I'd um, I'd I'd nearly got into football journalism when I first graduated, which was about well, almost about the exact same time as the financial crash, first one, and. I think I was just dissuaded from doing so because of the just pure scarcity of jobs and, you know, maybe the, the sort of wrong mindset of, oh, I've got to follow a proper career or, you know, I've done this degree in, in languages. So, you know, that leads me towards more of a, a corporate career, et cetera, et cetera. So I probably went into my career slightly on the wrong foot, but I don't regret any of it, but it's just an interesting case. Not just for me, but I think a whole host of people do the same thing. They um they end up in careers where if you told them that was what they were going to be doing, they might not have believed you or they might have thought kind of, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> or, you know, not, as I say, not that I regret any of it because it gave me uh, some great opportunities and I met some terrific people. I particularly enjoyed kind of the work I was able to do abroad. I worked in New York for six months. I was in Switzerland again an awful lot with uh, with my last company, which was Hive Learning, and uh, the chairman was Sir Clive Woodward. So I mean, and I was sat in meetings with him a lot, and you know, one of the only, well, apart from the Trevor Bayliss, the cricket coach, I think one of the only English World Cup winning coaches uh, <laughs> we can boast. So um, yeah, so um, you know, really terrific experiences, and um, but uh, there was a point. It came to a point where I was just kind of. I think when you reach a, a sort of maybe a decade, a bit less, or around there, you start to think what your career is really about, and your heart's telling you what you really want to do, but um, your head is saying, "Goodness me, that's an awful jump!" and can I make it work? And but in the end, I think the the rewards or the risk out outweighed um, the potential failure. So I, I think I just, um, I t- as you say, I took probably a, a slightly more methodical approach in the sense that I wanted to study. If I was going to move, I wanted to study first so that I was kind of, I could, you know, genuinely say I knew a bit about the subject and I knew what I was talking about and I could, I've proven I can do it and I've proven I can apply myself and then mix it with a bit of experience. So I studied and, and worked for probably, yeah, six months after I'd quit my, quit my job, just getting a grip for what I was doing. Um, the, the thing with a career change I found is that you never really, there's no, there's no, set path for doing it no one can really say these are the right steps and this is how long you need to take and this is what you need to do it's really just about a bit of feel and a bit of um following your following your gut and sort of seizing on seizing on the luck and, and the chances that, that present themselves and yeah yeah using your using your network and contacts that you've built up over over your life and i think um all of that sort of came together in the end and i was able to you know, very fortunately, find myself now working in in jobs that I really like, which you know, maybe I 
I hadn't always been able to say, um, but it definitely makes a difference to, um, I think, the quality of work and, and you know, your well-being, being able to do something you really love, you sort of put a bit more into it and it doesn't feel like work and all those sort of things that I'm sure people that do jobs they love can, can also bear witness to. You speak three languages? Yes. That's pretty impressive. That must have helped yeah. you before and after the career change, I guess. Yeah, it did. It did. I definitely, uh, it's, when when you go, I notice it when you go abroad a lot more that people are always surprised that an English or British person can speak languages, um, which is a bit is a bit depressing um, because it's such a big part of uh, of learning about other countries and other cultures. And when you can't do it, it just closes off so much of the world. So I always, you know, always enjoyed languages, always wanted to do it. And it had the added benefit of being able to go and explore other countries, be able to get by and, um, and also, yeah, be a bit of a distinguisher on my, on my CV, really. I think, yeah, for, for many jobs, they, they kind of, they ask for those things. But for my experience, the jobs that I've worked in, the people that spoke languages were the Portuguese person that, was native, you know, fluent in English, but they were native Portuguese. It wasn't an English person who spoke Portuguese, or it wasn't an English person that spoke French. It was a, it was a French person that had come to England. You know, so there are very few people I came across that were like that. Um, and I, I, I fear it's getting fewer and fewer. But um, I hope that you know we can still teach it and still learn it because it's a. I found it always a huge value. Do you write professionally exclusively in English? uh yes yeah. i do yeah probably for the best well, <laughs> yeah i do i um i also work for for marca yeah. the spanish daily which is not writing in spanish but it is translating from spanish to english okay but it's slightly easier when you're converting into your own language um rather than um trying to write in another one is there a particular sports journalism job that you would describe as having been your big break after the change of careers it's hard to say that. I mean, definitely, uh, definitely the Woking News and Mail is probably my big break, if I could call it that, only because it was the one where I suddenly felt like I was a bona fide journalist, sports journalist. You know, I'd done some roles beforehand, but they'd been quite ad hoc. Um, it, it wasn't like a, yeah, this isn't a permanent job, but it, it, it's more of a permanent job in the sense of it's, it's quite a, a chunky role and it takes up a lot of my week. Whereas the other ones had been, you know, I'd covered some games for Crystal Palace, for example, the academy matches, but it, it wasn't a regular thing. It was just kind of once or twice every now and again. Whilst that was fantastic for learning and making connections and getting into the, into the world, this was, that was probably my, um, I had a big break. That was it. But maybe there's more big breaks to come. I don't know when yeah. I get, when I get a job with, uh, Barcelona, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> Which other titles are on the the list at the moment? Because you you work for um, the News and Mail, but you also you have other roles um, as a freelance sports journalist. Mundial? Yeah. Did I see Mundial on the list somewhere? Uh, I've written for Mundial before. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love the guys there. They're, yeah. they're so talented. It was fascinating. I worked there for a for a very short time, just getting some experience. Um, but yeah, very very good stories, well told, passionate. Um, everything you'd want a, a football magazine or brand to be. Yeah, I do quite a lot of writing for Football Index as well, which is uh, the football stock market, as people call it, or they call it themselves. 
uh, which is which is really good fun. I've, I've loved their concept ever since they started. They're, they're a lot lot bigger now with huge Twitter communities and whatnot. But in the early days when I sort of first knew about them, it was, you know, it still is a, a, a really new concept. Um, and a, a lot of people are, are sort of mimicking what they've done, but they are, they were the first movers and it's been great to, to be associated with them and, and be able to kind of write about things that are really interesting and actually the the price points on football index is such a new way of thinking about value in football and like who which players are have the biggest sort of currency so to speak um and i, I also they, they've recently started a new podcast series which i've um contributed to so there's um they're quite an exciting company i, I think i like i like these companies that sort of do different things within sport within football you get new perspectives you get a way of thinking about the game that um, differs so widely across different, you know, publishers and tones of voice and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, those are probably some of the biggest ones I've worked for. I mean, they they all have their own merits and their own um, their own ways of of talking. And, and as a writer and journalist, it's it was very very difficult. I think for memory to chop and change between those two. So if you're doing a, a feature for Mundial versus a a sort of piece for a fairly tabloidy um, paper like like the News and Mail is it's a it's a real sea change of your mind every every week that you're shifting between them, but it's fun. Have you focused your beat as a result of getting work and also not wanting to chop and change between different clients? Possibly, I think uh, I think I'd I'd try to deliberately have a, a sort of wide variety of topics that I write about. I wouldn't say I've sort of I probably I have gravitated towards certain things, and sometimes I think as I as I learned in, in my previous career, you you do become a sort of subject matter expert for particular things because that's just what you're writing about, and that's therefore what you know. On the flip side, you can always branch out to different areas, and by having a variety of things that you've done, that does sort of evidence um, your ability to. Yeah, to cover things in different ways or to understand the dynamics um, of, of a club or a particular football country and all this sort of thing. So I, I think, um, I, I yeah, it's been probably a purposeful decision to keep a broad variety of things on, on the go. And in a way, that's part of the, yeah, that's part of the fun, sort of seeing where it takes you in, uh, in five, ten years. What I'd like to ask you to finish off, Rob, is what does the next year look like? But none of us know. I assume it's the same <laughs> for you. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to know. Um, I mean, I think the, uh, I think there's been a lot of ups and downs this year, not just for, for me, but, you know, in, in all of sports journalism, I think been on Twitter some days and I've just been seeing a raft of writers or people that I follow kind of saying, you know, it's been, it's, it's my last day at X. It's my last day at Y layoffs uncertainty difficulty to um keep going in in certain roles and that certainly affected me as well in in certain cases um if not not being able to do work anymore it certainly reduced the the volume of work that i've been able to do for for some of the the companies or, or publishers i work for so i'd love to know what it holds i mean i think there's good signs obviously going forward we're probably quite lucky in the sense that football has carried on i mean if you're a, a travel writer or if you're a, 
photographer or whatever, then you haven't been so lucky. But the fact that sport is still on means we're all still able to do this stuff, <laughs> which is, you know, we have to think we're very fortunate. And um, even if it's a bit of a fallow period, uh, yeah, I said to someone the other day, if we can sort of cope through all of this stuff, then um, we can sort of cope through anything, really. So um, I'm hopeful that the next year is about continuing to learn, continuing to sort of do the things that I like doing. And um, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we can get promoted. That would be the best. That would be the best thing. We're, we're, we were sitting in the playoffs. I need to check the table. I think we might still be. So um, I say we. Oh, I shouldn't say we. Should I? <laughs> meant to be a journalist. They. Um, but no, it's, uh, I'd I'd love to. Um, that's probably the way I'd love to see out the season with a, with a playoff or a or a promotion. That'd be really a, that'd be a really fun thing to cover. Well, I wish you the best. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for for joining us, Rob. Cheers, Chris. Pleasure likewise too. Where can we find you? I'm on Twitter a lot of the time. So uh, I, I think my username is Rob underscore Hemingway. That's with one M often misspelled. That's the Rob Hub. If you've enjoyed meeting Rob, there's plenty more where that came from. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Humans of Non-League is a Sphinx Football production. Thank you for listening. Thank you.